This is episode 137 of IDRA Class Notes. You run into a lot of writing today by some very distinguished, well-educated people, and it's empty. It's technically correct. They did everything they were supposed to do. But it's not interesting, and it's not real, because it's not authentic, because it's not honest, because it's not vulnerable, because it's not coming from inside who they really are. You don't have to hide it, and you don't have to pretend. And our kids need to know that, that who they are is somebody to be proud of, and they can write about it. Yeah! Welcome to IDRA's Class Notes podcast series. I'm Lori Posner. Today, we bring you part two of a two-part conversation called The Art of Writing. The Art of Writing panel was convened in San Antonio on February 13th as part of IDRA's Coca-Cola Valued Youth Program Annual Institute and Anniversary Celebration. In the conversation that follows, you will hear from Dr. Carmen Tafoya, the first poet laureate of the city of San Antonio, and Mr. Gilbert Quesada, author, historian, and former administrator of the Coca-Cola Valued Youth Program at South San Antonio ISD. Beginning with Dr. Tafoya, each author shares a bit of their own journey in becoming a writer and offers tips to teachers working with students to improve their own writing. We welcome and look forward to your comments and questions about this podcast. Thank you for listening. I do want to say just a little bit about writing itself, because a lot of people will tell you that writing is about getting the appropriate training, getting an MFA, learning about metaphor, learning about the tools and the devices and as a poet I have to tell you eh, no tanto not really because you run into a lot of writing today by some very distinguished well educated people and it's empty it's technically correct they did everything they were supposed to do but it's not interesting, and it's not real, because it's not authentic, because it's not honest, because it's not vulnerable, because it's not coming from inside who they really are. And your best writing comes from being honest about who you really are. Metaphor is important. You can tell a child, look, what does this remind you of? If you want to explain what the children's eyes look like, think about when you've ever had that emotion before. When you want to explain something that really frightened you? Think about the other things that frighten you. What are you scared of, bees? Okay, do like the acting method. Pretend there's a bee on your hand or a spider on your hand and you feel it. Okay, now do that in your writing. Take the emotions and give it a metaphor. Metaphor isn't just an exercise. A metaphor is a way of connecting to other things that have happened in our lives. But it's about our lives. It's about being who you really are. You don't make up anything. You don't have to say, it was a wonderful experience. Everyone was very respectful and considerate and decent. And what other big words do I have? Um, Dignified. It's not about using the big words. It's about going deep inside who you are, finding what's honestly there. I have one story that I tell a lot about becoming a writer. Because I grew up not knowing any writers. There was no library on my side of town. On the west side of San Antonio in the 1950s and the 1960s, we didn't have a library. The city council didn't think it was important enough to go out there. Those people don't even speak English. Why do they need a library, you know? We didn't have our streets paved. The cops didn't want to come out and check us out because we were the bad side of town. So 
we didn't have access to a lot of books. And my elementary school didn't have a library either. And when I was in about the, I think, sixth grade, the city finally put a library on the west side of San Antonio. And my mother would walk me once a week to the library because my dad had the car to go to work. My mom would walk with me. It was two miles. And she would walk me all the way. I would check out all the books they would let me check out. And we would go home. And as I looked through those books, I didn't find anything that looked like my life. But it was okay. It was a book, and I read it, and I was so happy. But I didn't know the names of any writers. I'd never met any writers. I'd never heard about creative writing courses. Nobody would ever asked me to write. But I read those books, and I loved them so much. And I read them all the way through, and then I was finished. And it was still three days till the next Tuesday that we were going to go back to the library again. And so I picked up the books again. Maybe there was something I missed. Maybe there was something I didn't read, and there was. There's a boring page behind every title page. And that boring page has little tiny fine print that says things like ISBN colon 0-115-3698-whatever. But it was boring. It really, there was really nothing there, but it was the only thing I hadn't read in the book, so I read it. And what I did find out was that every one of those boring pages had a little thing in there that said Doubleday, New York, or Random House, New York, or Little and Brown, New York. And I began to think that if you wanted to be a writer, you had to come from New York. You had to be like those people. There was no mirror for me. There was nothing I recognized in the book. It was great. It was a wonderful window, but there was no mirror. And I thought, too bad. If only I had grown up in New York, I might have been able to write about something important and be a writer. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write about the important things in the world, like, like the Statue of Liberty in Central Park and the things that you would find if you lived in New York. So I started my first novel. I wanted to be a writer. I don't know why. And I wrote. One day, while walking through the middle of Central Park, comma, in New York, comma. And then I was stuck. That was the end of the novel. I had nothing else to say about Central Park because I had no clue what you could do there or what it looked like. Instead of a park at the end of my block, we had a tortilleria where an elderly woman would make corn tortillas and sell them for a penny each. And she was old. She was the oldest breathing creature I'd ever seen still living. I mean, you know, she was still breathing. And I'd walk in the door up to the counter, which was a house, and they lived in the back, and they had a counter in the front room and sold the tortillas in the front room. And this old, old lady would barely come up to the counter. She'd get up to that front counter, and the little kid from down the block would cut line in front of me while I had my mouth hanging open, staring at her. And the little kid would slap seven pennies on the counter and say, Siete tortillas, por favor. And the old lady would start to count off his seven pennies. And she would count very slowly because she was very old. And she would count, Uno, dos. So I had a long while to watch her. And when I watched, I looked at her face. Her face was brown and wrinkled. It had little brown squares. It looked a lot like our charcos, our mud puddles that when it hasn't rained for a long while and the mud puddle dries up and it gets all cracked and dry. I don't know if you have this where you live, but in San Antonio we get a lot of very dry mud puddles. 
that are just cracked in little brown squares. That's what they look like. And I looked at her face and I said, Ay, Dios mío, that's why. That's why she and the earth look alike, because her face looks just like those mud puddles, little, little cracked brown squares. That's why, because she and the earth are the same age. She's the oldest breathing creature on the face of the earth. That's why she looks like that. And then she says, Tres. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. I saw her hair. The sun was coming in from the window, and it was hitting her hair, and her hair was so white that the sunlight looked like her hair and the sunlight were talking to each other. They were, they were going back and forth, conversing, sending these vibes, these big gamma rays or something back and forth saying, hey, como te va este siglo? Okay, last siglo, last century was a real bummer, man. Híjole, que gacho. They're talking to each other, her hair and the sunshine. And I'm thinking, she and the sunshine are buddies. They're buddies because they're the same age. She's the oldest breathing creature in the solar system. That's what it is. And then she's saying, Cinco. And I look at her hands, and her hands don't look like they're made out of hands. They look like they're made out of the corn masa that she worked all day long to make those tortillas. And I say, oh, my God, she's older than Mexican food. No civilization would be possible anywhere in the universe without Mexican food. This is the oldest breathing creature in the universe. And just when I'm concluding that, she says, Siete. And she takes her seven pennies, puts them in the pocket of her delatar, and turns around to yell to the back of the house for some help. Because when you're the oldest breathing creature in the universe, you deserve a little help, right? So she turns around, up beneath us, up beneath us, and she yells to the back of the house, Mama! <laughs> and her mother comes out. And helps her turn the tortillas. And I think I have nothing to write about because I was raised in New York. These kids, they don't see themselves on TV. They don't see themselves in the books unless they're lucky, get a few books that relate to them. But usually they're shocked if they find something in a book that, hey ma'am, I didn't know you could, you could say that on a page and get away with it. You know, you can use the word pendejo. You know, they, they, they're shocked when they find something that reflects their culture or their experiences. And so it's hard for them to write unless they know. So modeling, showing them things that have been written, lets them be a little more open. Lets them feel that they're affirmed. They exist. And just as an afternote, Years later, after all the books and the awards and whatever, there's one piece that's been published more than anything. And it's not about New York, and it's not about Central Park. And you can't say, well, you know, if you want to be a writer, you either have to grow up in New York or on a block with a tortilleria at the end of it. It's a little ten-line poem that I wrote about the tortilleria. And the reason it was successful was because it came from inside who I really honestly was. And your best writing always comes from being who you really are, exactly the way you are. You don't have to hide it, and you don't have to pretend. And our kids need to know that, that who they are is somebody to be proud of. And they can write about it. Yeah. And they're not going to get in trouble with it. They're going to get away with it, being able to write about who they really are and what they really experience. So that's what I say is they may not have that experience, And you may not have the materials that reflect them exactly, but if you start to reflect 
back to them things that will cause these discussions, they will begin to find the metaphor and the literary devices and the tools, and they will struggle because there's nothing quite as delicious as saying, I do exist, and I wrote it here on this paper, and this is what I went through, and this is what I feel. And these kids, these kids are amazing, and their transformation is even more amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Tafoya, for sharing that story, but also for pointing us toward the notion of a window and a valuing mirror, which is very consonant with the program. I wonder if, Mr. Quesada, if you might share a bit, because we have so many educators in the room who will be working with students on their essays, both for this program but also more broadly, and if you might have anything to add as far as how they might be helpful to their students as they construct their essays. I have some suggestions that you can take back with you to your school districts and also to your classrooms. I'll give you four, four ideas that I have used personally. One is that you have to give your students what I call a writer's toolbox. Almost all the professions have a toolbox. You know, even the vocational professions have a toolbox. Well, the writers also have a toolbox. And in that toolbox, you need to make sure that your students have a solid foundation in grammar, punctuation, spelling, vocabulary, and word usage. Now, in vocabulary, you want to encourage your students to use dictionaries, to use synonym finders, to use thesaurus, to expand the vocabulary. And I don't mean to make every little student a William F. Buckley. That's not my intent. But you need to make sure that they expand the vocabulary, that when you read their essays, that they do not use the same word twice in the same sentence or twice in the same paragraph. So encourage them to use a dictionary or several dictionaries and a thesaurus uh, or cinnamon finder so they can expand their vocabulary. That is very important. The third thing that I would suggest to you would be to uh, give them some ideas, some exercises that will create creative thinking. And there are several ways that you can do this. One is you can present some prompts and say, show them a photograph of something. Let's say a, the one I used in one of the classes was a person trying to open a door, and it's kind of dark, and you don't see what's on the other side of the door. And you tell the students, now, expand on this photograph. See what you can add to it. What does it mean to you? And let the students go on their own using their own creative imaginations. What does it mean to me from my own experiences, from what I have read, from what I saw on TV or something? So this will give them an idea of how to, how to respond to that prompt, to that photograph. And another idea would be to tell the students that start something like, do you know what I received in the email this morning? And let the students finish that based on whatever they want to write about. Another way would be to ask the students to, to write their memoirs. 
Uh, you may think, well, memoirs, usually you say that when you're retired, when you're old, you know, to write about your memoirs, to write something about what you have lived so many years. But when I was in the eighth grade many, many years ago, 1959, 1958, anyway, the teacher asked us, I want to want all of you eighth graders to write your memoirs. Okay. I mean, for an eighth grader to write your memoirs, how long have you lived? 12 years? 13 years? But still, it was a challenging task. And I wrote my memoirs, and I still have a copy at home of the paper that I did. And I entitled my paper just simply, My Life. I mean, as an eighth grader. And on the dedication page, I put, to my dear parents who made the book possible. And then on the table of contents, I had ten little chapters. My first chapter was my birth. Let the students write about, for the parents to tell the the student how they were born. Were they born at home, in the hospital? In my generation, we were born at home. Now, that's unheard of. But the circumstances, were they born in the morning, in the afternoon? The second chapter was my baptism. To write about who were your godparents and so forth. And it went on, my first communion, my first birthday, my at present, what am I doing now? My interests, my future as an eighth grader. I wanted to be a basketball player because I was the tallest in the class at 5'10", which I never became. I wanted to, be, I wanted to join the Navy, like my father, during World War II, which I never did. And I wanted to be an FBI agent, which I never did. <laughs> but still, you, you make the student think and write those memoirs. And I kept my copy. And every so often I look at my memoirs and say, hmm, how different did I think at that time? So one of the other activities you can do for your students, besides writing memoirs, is to uh, practice the art of writing. Practice by different activities, like, like the ones I just mentioned. They can do book reviews. I don't know about how many you do nowadays, but we used to do a book review once a month. We get to read a book once a month. And if you read 12 books or 9 books, you, get a, you would get a certificate from TEA saying you have accomplished this goal. I don't think they do that anymore, but it's a good idea to get into the habit of doing book reviews. One of the ways that you can help the students is by making the students have an outline before they start writing the essay. An outline will help them put their thoughts together in a coherent, organized way. Sometimes the students, their minds are all over the place. It's like a shotgun approach. They really don't know how they're going to approach an essay or a writing assignment. So you ask them to write an outline, and that outline becomes a roadmap. They follow the outline, and they follow their thoughts into sentences, paragraphs, and so on. Now, in my situation, the, I like to write an outline first before I start into a project. When I first wrote my award-winning political biography, Border Boss, I had no idea how I was going to start. So I wrote an outline in my mind trying to see, well, 
where am I going to start, where am I going to go with this story, and how am I going to end it? That outline became the table of contents for my book. When I wrote my novel, Terror on the Border, I did the same thing because it had worked for me the first time. And I like to be well organized, and I like to know where I'm going from point A to point B and then on to point Z. So the outline helps me put my thoughts together. And when I wrote my outline for my novel, that became my table of contents also. For your students, it's the same thing. You need to tell your students to write an outline before they start writing. That way they'll know in a sequential manner how they're going to approach the writing task. And the last thing I would suggest is my formula that I call P plus R equals SW. P is for practice. Practice, practice, practice the craft of writing. R is for reading. I think from my own experience that reading and writing are synonymous. A good reader is a good writer. A good writer is a good reader. They cannot be separated. You will not believe this, but all of you have heard of Stephen King, I'm sure. You've seen his movies like once a month. I mean, he publishes novels like, like a factory. Well, I read a book by him I did not know existed. And Stephen King wrote a book, The Craft of Writing, My Memoirs. I didn't know he was a writer. I did not know he was an English teacher. And in this book, he talks about writing and reading. And, and it kind of hits close to home, because that's what I had believed all along. And Stephen King says, if you do not have time to read, you do not have time to write. Of all people, Stephen King. So practice plus reading equals success in writing. That's my formula. And that's the formula that you need to give to your students. They need to practice the craft of writing. And I'm talking about writing in many different circumstances, whether it's social writing, writing about a birth in the family, writing to a friend, to a girlfriend, on a birthday, an anniversary, a death of a friend or a neighbor, on formal occasions like Valentine's Day coming up tomorrow, And don't have your students buy those cards and just sign your name on the card and mail it. To me, that's so unmanageable, so uncreative. Instead of buying or spending money, a dollar fifty, I don't know how much they cost nowadays, to buy a card, let the students put their own thoughts into the idea, into the occasion, and sign it. Sometimes when I receive those cards with just a signature, it doesn't mean anything to me. It means that the person never took the time to really express how they feel about the occasion. So I would encourage your students to to write more, to practice. Every time they have an opportunity, practice, practice. Read equals success in writing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.